0: The Slate Political GabFest is sponsored by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer and save up to 80% compared to a postage meter. Sign up for a no-risk trial now and a $110 bonus offer when you visit Stamps.com and use the promo code GabFest. And buy Squarespace the easiest way to create a beautiful website, blog, or online store. Squarespace features an easy-to-use interface, beautiful templates, and 24-7 customer support. Right now, go to squarespace.com and use the offer code GABFEST at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. The following podcast contains explicit language.
1: and welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest for May 22nd, 2015, the Osama bin Laden sure-read, boring books edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. Joining me in New Haven, or New Haven, is it New Haven or New Haven? I'm not sure. She'll tell us in a second, Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine, or the New York Times Magazine.
2: <laughs> no, that sounds weird. I think New Haven can be either way.
1: What do you say?
2: I usually say New Haven, but I think lots of people say New Haven.
1: Huh. And from Oklahoma City, where he's announced his campaign for president, is John Dickerson of CBS Face the Nation. Hello, John.
3: Hello, David. Hello,
1: Emily. What were your What will you be running on? What will your campaign be based
3: on? My, what will my campaign platform be? Yeah. Um, I don't know. More sleep for everyone.
2: Hmm. Oh, I like it. I'm sold.
3: Really. Yeah. More sleep for everyone. You're not
2: such a sleep person, but it's a weird thing about you I don't know how to account for.
1: I have to say. you're
2: so sunny and functional.
1: I, as I've gotten older, I am not. I'm sleeping less. It is just, uh, I never slept a lot, but do you, how much do you guys sleep?
3: I mean, I can't sleep anymore, but I would like to. How much cl- yeah, and if on you the were weekends, allowed to? I
2: totally catch up and make sure to get eight hours.
3: Well, I, can't, I mean, I can't, even if I try to get eight hours, I can't anymore. I just, I just wake up. Like I basically wake up. That's where I am. I'm with
1: Dickerson. I
2: wake up a lot, but I try to go back to sleep.
1: Huh. I don't think I don't think I've slept eight hours, maybe once in the last two years. It just doesn't work. It doesn't happen. Anyway. Wow. So it goes. I'm in a log roll for Obscure Day. So May thirtieth, twenty fifteen. If you were anywhere in the world, do something amazing on May thirtieth. We have a hundred and fifty events in twenty-five countries, thirty-nine states atlas obscura you've got to go out and do something so email me david at dot i will tell you some great thing to do on may 30th and i was actually on a fantastic huffington post uh, podcast called the the weird news it's part of the panoply network i was on the weird news podcast this week and we talked about um obscure day and that's a great fun podcast i strongly recommend you listen to it it was it was a f- super fun show to be on not that this isn't, too.
2: Are you done with all your endorsements of yeah, things I'm not d- slate
1: play? I am. I am. I <laughs> am done with that. Now we'll get to the show, sort of. But there's actually another endorsement coming, but I was that one I was assigned to do. We will talk today about Osama bin Laden's reading list. The U.S. just released uh, a list of his English language reading. Woo, it's a funny, it's a fun, funny list. We will talk about Um We'll talk about it. The weirdest part was that he was re- He read a nine eleven. He had who knows if he read it. A nine eleven conspiracy tract that was a nine eleven truther thing, saying that.
2: But of course he did that. And aren't you just like going right into the topic without announcing the other two?
1: I, no, I was just that was a weird part of it. I was just previewing it. I was exciting people. Mm. The other then we'll talk about the Columbia mattress rape controversy. It reaches a, a kind of ending as Emma Sulkowitz The the, uh, protester graduates, did that controversy teach us anything about campus sexual assault? Emily Bazelon will tell us. And then we'll have talk about two extremely strange articles about the state of relations between the sexes, one about workplaces on Capitol Hill, one about homes on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, both bizarre. Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter, of course. And in Slate Plus, we have listener questions. There's some great listener questions that we will answer So, we also have one more thing to announce. I happened onto this this week. It was so good. It's a podcast about the history of slavery that Jamel Bowie of Slate and Rebecca Onion of Slate are doing. It's called The History of American Slavery, and it's a nine-part podcast series that is exclusively for Slate Plus members. It is really good. Jamel and, and Rebecca are so smart and interesting, and it's such a... It's a topic that is still alive. So visit slate.com slash academy to learn more. That's part of the Slate Academy, which is a Slate Plus feature. So we learned this week that Osama bin Laden read or at least possessed Foreign Policy magazine, Newsweek. He had a Bob Woodward book. He had a Paul Kennedy book, The Rise and Fall of the Great Powers. He read Noam Chomsky. He read Congressional Research Service Assessments of Al Qaeda. He read a U.S. government document called instructions on aircraft, aircraft piracy, hijacking and destruction of derelict airborne objects. He read reports on the Islamist threat. He read a 1990 U.S. Marines guide to fighting guerrillas. He possessed U.S. passport applications. And he's the only person on the entire planet who had and possibly read a white paper from Wesley Clark's 2004 presidential <laughs> campaign. Emily, what did we learn about Osama bin Laden from this, this uh, reading list that got released?
2: Well, he was plugged into the West and interested in the West, but in a way that, to me, seemed to fit my image of him in the sense that there was this kind of heavy bias toward conspiracy theory and questioning the government. You know, not all. I mean, that's certainly not what Paul Kennedy is writing about. But even when you start moving into the terrain of Noam Chomsky, you're in a very skeptical mode. And it seemed to me like he must have been feeding his what he wanted to believe about the United States um, with some of these readings in which, you know, you have 9-11 truthers, you have this idea that there's this evil empire that uh, – and if only you could expose it. And that's what some of these readings are about.
1: John, doesn't this confirm conservatives' belief that, that people like Noam Chomsky and skeptics of America on the left are in fact abetting our enemies?
3: I don't know if it means they're abetting them. I think to the extent that they claim that writers like that are abetting anything, it's the weakness of U.S. thought about the nature of the threat, so that it's weakening U.S. resolve. But I don't think think anybody's using this to make the case that they were somehow helping bin Laden.
1: Someone must be making that case.
3: No, the bigger case, actually, that's interesting about these documents that was made to me by a Republican on the Hill, a lawmaker on the Hill, the fight over these documents. I mean, we can. I guess I'm moving on too quickly from what was actually in them. But um, there's been this desire to get the administration to hand over the documents for a long time, and the and the administration has dragged their feet. And one of the things that conservative or that Republicans think are in these documents is some are some documents related to Iran, and they think that, in particular, those documents would suggest that Bin Laden and Al Qaeda and Iran were in closer connection and contact uh, than perhaps previously known. Why does that matter? Well, we're about to have uh, a big debate about this Iranian nuclear agreement that's going to likely be struck and that then Congress will have 30 days to evaluate. And the argument is basically that the president, in order to get this deal, a deal we don't know the full details of yet, but that if he does get a deal, it will rely on trusting Iran at some level, it will have measures and provisions in it that will try to keep Iran honest, but that at some basic level it believes that Iran is being truthful when it says things like it will take the new money that will be released after sanctions are lifted and put that money towards their domestic economy and not into funding Hezbollah and other and Syria and and fighters in uh, in Yemen and that basically. What these documents would show is that Iran's been lying all along, and that's why Republicans want them in the public domain so that people will know the sort of true nature of the Iranian aims in the world. Um,
1: that seems so just crazy and far fetched, isn't the, yeah, I thought there were docu- sh- I thought the documents were much more about Bin Laden's fear of Iran. That Bin Laden thought Iran was out to get him, not that he wanted to. He was expecting to work with him. They're they're theologically not aligned. There was no. There's no great Sunni-Shi'ite alliance around creating terror
3: together? Uh, well, we don't know the nature of whatever they think is in these documents. So, we, I mean, we don't know. Um,
2: well, we should. I mean, what is the excuse for how long this has taken to come out? It seems completely – I can't – I just can't really imagine what it could be.
3: Well, all the standard uh, excuses, sources and methods, classified, you know – We're using the the material in there to continue chasing after these kinds of terrorists. And if they knew what we had, they would change their tactics. I mean, there's...
1: Yeah, I I was actually surprised that they came out as soon as they did. It's only been three years.
3: It but
2: seem- finding out that he was reading Paul Kennedy and Noam Chomsky is somehow going
3: to affect Well, that's, that's why you power. know that he is, because not, that's not the serious— I mean, Well, I know,
2: but think how oh, long mean, that took. It and it doesn't sound like the Iran documents you're talking about necessarily. Um, certainly, they could be redacted in a way that would answer the question that you're posing.
3: Yeah.
1: Well, they also—but, Emily, not everything they released was— was U.S. News and World Report article. Some of it was letters he would send in. Some of it was Al-Qaeda. There was the one one great document, which was one of the Al-Qaeda application forms, which included questions (laughs) about what hobbies you might have and also, who should we contact in case you become a martyr? (laughs) The, Seems emergency, like an important the emergency. application emergency. Con- <laughs> Your
2: emergency contact number would come in handy. Do you
1: think there are people who are like? Do you think there uh, are people kind of who are like? Are who are like, like oh my school. god! I can't believe Celine put me down for that martyr contract. Now I've got to deal with all the paperwork and his body. Oh, but I God! Like why did he put things things me down there?
2: That were release seem like sort of quaint or interesting. They're not things that make you feel like oh geez, this was a tough call about whether to keep it remaining classified or not.
1: One of the interesting things that they did keep classified, and they seem to be proposing to keep classified in perpetuity, is his porn. Which you would yeah, think they would want to. Really care? Well, you'd think they'd want to release that just to embarrass and to show to show that uh, these these people who are you know who are espousing extreme religious beliefs about sexuality and about women and and that they they in fact are subject to the same behaviors that they're condemning in all the rest of the world.
2: But don't you think then that could become a cause for some other really angry religious people to, you know, take up the backlash from that seems like pretty obvious. And what's the benefit?
1: Mockery. What's that? Humiliation.
3: But I don't think they want to necessarily do that. Also, wouldn't it then you would then argue, wait, you're you're releasing all this stuff, but not any of the interesting stuff. Like, stop monkeying around. This is not a... You know, you're not being serious about this. Did
1: they tell us, John, what they didn't release going to your Iran point? Do we know what what I hasn't been released? I don't think so. So there could be a huge, gigantic trove of materials related yes. to Iran I mean, that they and, just... And
3: hoping. the Iran piece is not, you I mean, I know, I'm not even sure that anybody admits that that's what's in there.
1: So beyond the fact that he was a conspiracist and that he sought to understand how America was thinking about him, I, the thing that I liked about this was maybe this is the thing other people don't like, was the fact that there was so much available to him, that he, that he could go on. He had some, there was something he had, which was a list of U.S. government documents or something which was literally a gigantic list of, of publicly available material that even our worst enemy can go and, and download all sorts of things and, and learn a gigantic amount about us. It speaks very well to the openness of us as a, as a society. And we should be heartened by that it shouldn't worry us the free us it, flow
2: of information yeah. right into the heart of the enemy in abadabad
1: yeah and that they presumably like exposure weakens i would hope exposure weakens his own resolve or makes him realize wow these guys are these guys are serious i don't know what it does maybe it maybe it doesn't maybe it just gives him insight in how to kill, kill us better but
2: what did you guys think of the fact that there was a suicide prevention manual and then the government quickly said that they didn't think it was for bin Laden himself? Do you think they know that from questioning the wives? or
1: They barely worked? questioned the
3: wives, so I doubt that. Right.
2: It. So how did they know that? It seemed like a strange assertion to make.
3: I don't know. I don't know. It's also a man responsible for suicide bombings with a suicide prevention manual. It does... Um, Invite black dark humor,
1: right? Well, and maybe genuinely, he was making sure he understood. If you're going to send people to go kill themselves, what are the normal things that you would? use What are the normal things that prevent people from killing themselves? And then let's let's work around it. I hadn't
2: even thought of that.
1: Well, it's like it's like the seer training, right? That becomes the manual for torture. So you're teaching people to resist torture, and then you realize, oh, we're actually teaching people to torture by teaching. Torture resistance, and now will translate into actually torturing people. It's a it's a version of that. All right, let's leave um, let's leave Bin Laden. Unless you have any any other points, John. Anything else? Any political implications from this that we're well? Missing? Only
3: that wasn't it. That one of the claims of the Seymour Hirsch article that all of this stuff was totally
1: manufactured. Manufactured.
3: Planted. We should just note that.
1: Uh, yeah, no one no one could possibly manufacture Newsweek and U.S. News and World Report articles from two thousand eight. No one would know where to find those articles. <laughs> I was a little insulted. There was nothing from Slate there. But maybe he just read them online when he was reading.
2: That's so important and crucial that it has not yet been declassified.
1: That's right, exactly. he's He's, he's reading. he They were definitely Bazelon and Dickerson pieces in there. They just didn't the world <laughs> actually, he was listening to the Dust no. every week that would be how would you That's feel? How downloaded. would you feel if we discovered that we were being listened to by Islamist enemies? Would, you be, would that harden you or dishearten <laughs> you? Shocked. We could have planted secret messages. We can, Well, if you are an Islamist radical bent on the destruction of America and you listen to the GabFest, tweet at us <laughs> at SlateGabFest or send me an email, GabFest at Slate.com. We'd love to hear from you. GabFest is brought to you this week by Stamps.com. You do whatever it takes to make sure your business runs efficiently but constant trips to the post office can get in the way. With Stamps.com, you'll be able to spend less time at the post office and more time growing your business. Stamps.com makes mailing and shipping easy. Use your own computer and printer to buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter, any package, and Stamps.com does all the thinking for you. Oh, that would be so nice to have someone do all the thinking for me. With a digital scale, it will calculate the exact postage needed, and it will help you decide the best class of mail based on your needs. Join over half a million small businesses that use stamps.com and never go to the post office again. And of course, we have our special offer. Use our promo code GABFEST and you'll get a no risk trial and a $110 bonus offer, which includes a digital scale and up to $55 in free postage. Don't wait. Go to stamps.com. Before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in GABFEST. That's stamps.com. Enter GABFEST. Emma Salkowitz, a Columbia University senior, graduated this week. She carried her mattress at commencement and at a class day celebration, a famous mattress that she's been porting around all year as a form of protest and performance art and for class credit as a way of demanding that Columbia expel a fellow student who she claims raped her, a man named Paul, and Emily will pronounce his name for us. Nungesser. I've been
2: saying Nungesser, but Nungesser. I'm
1: sure that's right. He's a German, German who is a student at Columbia. Sulcovitz made a claim last year that he had he had raped her. The university cleared him, and there were no charges pressed against him. But she believes that he shouldn't be on campus, and there's now there are now kind of competing stories about this. There's a legal case that. N- Nunges- N- How do you say it?
2: I'm going for Nunjesser.
1: Nunjesser has brought where he has sued the university and one of a, a professor at the university for gender based harassment, saying the university is giving her credit and a platform to make his education impossible to and to smear his good name, even though he was cleared by the university and no charges were pressed. And she, meanwhile, was a much fetid and much lionized. So, Emily, you have been I think following this case really carefully. Is this the end of the Sulkwitz Nungesser showdown? Is this is this case going to continue past graduation?
2: Well, I think this sort of toxic problem of having them both on campus is over, but this lawsuit will continue. And you know, the sort of fundamental question the lawsuit raises is whether this act of performance art, the it's called the mattress um performance, this idea that and and when Sulkowitz started, she set up rules for herself. She was gonna carry it everywhere with her on campus until none just or she was no longer on the campus. So was this her free speech right? Something that was a creative and worthy way of calling attention to a problem that, you know, she'd made this rape accusation and she had lost her case. And I think in order to see it from her side, you have to, um, well, at least, yeah, my own feeling is that if that interpretation makes sense, you have to fault Colombia for its procedures in trying to adjudicate this dispute. Paul Nuncester's view of this is that it was a harassment campaign that targeted him made him shunned, which I think was his experience of school in the wake of this project. He was also outed. So he he now has become the sort of national symbol for the college, quote, alleged rapist, even though he was cleared by the university. And his lawsuit, what I think is most interesting about it is this kind of question he's asking, would Columbia have allowed a male student to target a female student in the way that he feels Sulkowitz targeted him.
1: Is the problem simply that the university gave her credit that this was part of an art project? Because presumably she could walk around. I mean, it would be a huge pain to walk around with a mattress, but there's no, there's no law to prevent you from walking around with a mattress and telling everybody you meet that the reason you're carrying your mattress around is because you think this guy has, has raped you.
2: Right. That's true. I mean, yes, from the point of view of the lawsuit, the academic support for the project is a big deal. There are also logistical adjustments that Columbia made. Solkowitz has said that all of the shuttle bus drivers, for example, were told to pick her up with her mattress, even though normally you wouldn't be able to bring a big object like that with you. So, you know, there are ways in which several ways, I think, in which the university facilitated this. And if you think of it as an art project, and again, as free speech, that seems like it's commendable and in line with the educational mission. And if you think of it as a harassment campaign, that was also an example of reverse gender discrimination, it becomes much more sinister.
3: Politics aside, what do you what do you think would happen to his case?
2: I I mean, it, I think it's going to be a really interesting test case. There have been there are now something like three dozen cases around the country of men who've been punished for sexual assault by the universities and are suing. There's a guy at Duke who's gotten kind of past the first level in court, so that case is worth watching. There's another case from Columbia with a guy who looks from just the pleadings, and I don't know much about this case, but if you read his version of what happened, you, you you might well think to yourself, like, gee, he really got in trouble? It sounds like the evidence wasn't strong. But the judge who heard that case threw it out and didn't go for this idea that there was real evidence of reverse gender discrimination so it's going to be really interesting to see how this play- case plays out.
1: I, what I don't understand is they each. So he he also presumably has a defamation case to make against her, right? He could yes. sue her for defamation. He's chosen not to. Could. She could sue so him, for- right? She could definitely make a civil case against him, even though she
2: for oh right for, in terms of for sexual assault for sexual yes, assault she could, she do, could that.
1: do and and she hasn't done that. And I I hate the use of the legal system to pro- solve problems which you can't really solve. Feels to me like this is one this is one where where neither the free speech nor the legal solution actually get anybody anywhere just makes everybody more unhappy she would be right, better well, she'd be better off if she didn't talk about it and kind of went home and just like god this was really fucked up and he would be better You mean in terms of she should have he done had,
2: her whole performance why do you think that why do you think she would have been better off
1: Well because why do I think she'd be better off I think she'd be better, better off because she's now made this thing a defining act of her life which which is, everything that comes after her in this in her life is going to be that's the first thing that's going to anyone's going to know about her for the rest of her life is this is is But this. why
2: is that necessarily a bad thing i mean you could say well, it's, it's a because big it, burden because it,
1: because because you, it's an active choice that you've made as a 21 year old that that some something that happened to you which may well have been absolutely terrible and may have been a criminal sexual assault although it doesn't you know that certainly the legal system hasn't said that legal system has said the reverse, and the whatever Colombia has has said the reverse is now the thing that you spend your life arcing against or arcing you know around, and that that just is a, that's a pretty heavy decision to make as a twenty one year old to have to live with it's that for true, the rest of your life. I, like, I mean, if you think uh, about yeah. what the Monica, what Monica Lewinsky has been saying, and this is, Monica Lewinsky is a totally different situation. That was a consensual sexual relationship that somebody had. But again, here's something that happens to you at 21. In her case, she didn't willingly adopt it, but it has it has basically been the defining thing about her for her whole life. And Emma Sulkowicz, I don't think you know. I don't think she could know what's going to happen and and she look she's totally in the right it is like it is like if this was as damaging as it, she said it was and if she was wronged in the way she she believed she was wrong then by all means it is it is perfectly within her rights to do this and and um, i can see emotionally it might be satisfying but the fact is that that is a decision that is now going to she has to live with forever and if i were her mother or her father i would have been like you know what maybe let's take a semester off and you know come back and and you know, not make this the centerpiece of your life. And similarly, yeah. Paul Nungusser, I think yes or shouldn't – he's going to regret like being Well, he doesn't – didn't have system. a choice.
2: He His name got dragged into this, right? Like he tried to lay low and that failed for reasons that were not of his making. But I think your take on Salkowitz is – I'm just not sure you're right. I mean, one of the differences between Lewinsky and Salkowitz is that the times have changed. And these young women who are coming forward and telling their stories of sexual assault are claiming a different kind of power. I mean, to me, it's very different than my generation. And I am sort of – I'm – I'm not exactly sure what to make of it. But I do think they are changing the world. And there is a power in that. And the other thing about Solkowitz's art project is she got an amazing amount of critical attention that was largely, as far as I've read, super positive. And so in some ironic way, this could be like, very helpful to her in terms of her future profession, if she chooses to pursue it.
3: Well, and not only that, she she could see this totally differently, which is not that this is the... You don't have to arc your life around this, that this is a time when you took a stand and and stood up for a a system that was horrible and you changed the conversation. And so who can say that they did that in, in college, especially out of a horrible thing? You know, if you turned a horrible thing into something you owned and that helped other women... And then yeah. presumably that's the way she sees yeah. it. Then like,
1: you're right. Then you're,
3: that's a greater yeah. achievement than yeah. any of the rest of us achieved at college. assuming of course that the underlying facts are as she says they are.
1: Yeah, no, you, that's, that's all fair. I, I get, I think where, where this is coming from and this is the the part which is harder to say is that like I identify with Paul Nunjuster in this situation. Like I, mm-hmm. he, the, his version of what happens to me feels as compelling as the version that I've heard her version of it. And it makes me just crazy to think that this guy's life has been so turned upside down. And it, it really freaks me out and disturbs me. There clearly are rapes happening. They're happening on, on campuses and not on college campuses. But there are also a lot of very sexually ambiguous situations that are happening, which people come away with different and because sex is complicated and people's behavior around sex is really complicated and weird and there's a lot of ambiguity and people come to regret things which they don't regret at the time and it it makes me so anxious for my sons so anxious for for my daughter that this world is has become what it is and i guess i guess the truth is i don't like the fact of Solkowitz's project i don't like the fact that she she's become so celebrated When it appears to me that everything is so gray.
2: So, just two things. One is that just so we make this clear, Salkowitz's version of this sexual encounter is not a gray area. There is no ambiguity. She's claiming rape and and some degree of violence. Nun Jesser completely denies those accusations, but it's not like we're having some argument about whether, you know, a drunken hookup was sort of consensual or not this is like two diametrically opposed Right, one versions. of them is lying and one of them is not telling the truth and i have having spent some time talking to both of them and trying to report the story out do not know the answer to that i so i guess partly because i don't know i've gotten more interested in this other problem Which is that Columbia did adjudicate this. And, you know, David, your critique of these Title IX proceedings, that's the federal law that's requiring colleges to investigate and referee sexual assault disputes – has been well taken. But the school, you know, they tried to give some version of due process. Now, Solkowitz and are both have criticisms of what they did, but they the school put this case through some process. And that process either was illegitimate or is perceived unfairly as being illegitimate. And because it happened behind closed doors and much of it is still secret, it's, again, I am not sure which of those things is true. But I do think there is a fundamental problem with having some kind of procedure that is supposed to settle a big, huge accusation. I mean, this is about whether someone committed rape or not. And You know, in the public open court system, we don't usually have situations in which someone is found not guilty and then is still called guilty and and sort of assumed to be guilty in many, many forums. And that's what is going on here. And there is something wrong with this moment in time and our. I think, societal confusion about these university procedures. And I feel like Nungesser is essentially the scapegoat for that. And that, to me, is trouble. Right,
1: right, because, she, because there were no criminal charges brought Either because prosecutors felt there was not enough evidence, or she didn't cooperate, or
2: she didn't. push She pulled. She decided yeah. she didn't. So, so go she through re, with she that.
1: didn't go through with it. So she was not willing to stand up and sort of make a truth claim in court under oath. Nor was she willing to do that in a civil suit. So it's, it seems to me like this guy is being totally – I mean, as you say, he's, he's a scapegoat. The only circumstance in which this has been adjudicated, which was privately, he was cleared, she has, uh, has other opportunities to attempt to adjudicate it, which he has declined to take advantage of. And for him to be scapegoated is so, is so disturbing. And
2: right. But I guess wrong. I'm still I'm, – you're right. All of that – I see all of that. But the sort of weird like loop I get into with this is that if you see it from her point of view and he raped her, then she – has been incredibly successful at mounting a political protest. And there's like a level of righteous resistance there that seems like, okay, you know, he was shunned, but if he committed rape, then he, you know, there's like, you can totally go down that path. The problem is that we just don't know. And we don't even know whether we should trust the proceeding or not. I don't feel like I know. And so with with those two things being question marks, it gets really, really hard. Although I tend to land procedurally speaking essentially where you do which is that like well this is the only proceeding we have and don't we have to credit that proceeding unless we have really clear evidence that it was so completely deficient and i just but i like i really just feel like i end up in some unanswerable set of mirrors here that was a terrible metaphor
1: (laughs) the unanswerable mirror
2: yeah, that's not a thing.
1: I, I, will. <laughs> I don't think I'm – I think I cannot speak on this anymore because every time I open the, my mouth, I say something that's going to get me in trouble or stupid. No, uh, no. I
2: think that you uh, – it's all good to I have a
1: one, one last question, which uh, is for you, I guess, Emily. But John, if you want to field it too because you've been silent in Oklahoma City. One of the things at issue in this case is that there were relatively friendly Facebook messages from her to him after the alleged rape. Although he was not able to introduce that, apparently, in his own defense at Columbia. He was not. Columbia
2: did not accept that as evidence. But in the writing
1: about it, though, Kathy Young, who's written about this for The Daily Beast, and I think for reason, has made much of the fact that she was communicating in a friendly fashion. What are we to make of these friendly communications that that seem to be a feature of a lot of these cases?
2: Well... Yeah. So what Emma Salkowitz has said about this and she annotated the Facebook exchanges for the for Jezebel is that she was basically like irrationally trying to kind of deny what had happened and talk to him. And, you know, it is certainly true that people experience sexual assault and don't react to don't do everything they can to pretend that's not what happened to them. That's like a common occurrence And whether that's what happened here or not, I just, I mean, it's, you read these messages, they seem so casual. And to an adult, at least, reading them, it seems hard to imagine being so friendly and chatty with someone who you had such dark feelings towards. On the other hand, like, denial is a really powerful force. And rape victims, because of all the shame of rape, and because it's so startling, especially to be raped by someone you know in... A situation in which you are trusting them. And this happened in her Columbia dorm room. People can go to great lengths to basically like try to rearrange the facts in their own brain. And again, I just leave with a big question mark about this one.
1: All right. We are sponsored this week by Squarespace, a great tool for making a website. Websites have historically been very hard to make or have pers- you've had the sense that they're really hard to make. Every time I've ever set out to make a website in the past, I was always like, oh, I'm daunted. I'm just going to give up. Squarespace makes it really easy to make a great, beautiful, useful website. The sites that you can create with Squarespace look professional. They look professionally designed. They are responsive, which is super important. I'm just dealing with that with with Atlas Obscura. It's incredibly important to have a responsive site, which means it looks great on a phone. It looks great on a tablet. It looks great on a desktop there. And the, the Squarespace sites are all responsive. They're intuitive to create. The tools are really easy. And they're very secure, which is why Squarespace is trusted by millions of people and why really big brands use Squarespace to make their websites and it starts at only $8 a month. Plus, you get a free domain if you sign up for a year. So start your free trial a day, no credit card required, at squarespace.com. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, use our offer code GAVFEST to get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace, build it beautiful. All right. Third topic is two two weird stories in one. In New York, an anthropologist with the unlikely name of Wednesday Martin delighted all the non-rich people in the country with a New York Times article on Sunday about people she called the Glam Sams, the glamorous stay-at-home mothers of wealthy Manhattan. These are women married to rich men, often finance industry types, hedge fund, private equity guys. And these women have have withdrawn from the workforce to raise their children in single-sex enclaves in which their primary activities are Pilates classes, lots of lunches with with white wine flowing plentifully, competition to get into private schools. And most pungently, the detail that has stuck out of the story was something called the wife bonus, which is that when your hedge fund husband gets a bonus at the end of the year, you, the wife, also get a bonus based on your performance in wifeness. So did you get the kids into a good private school? How's the household running? Is your status in the community up? So the wife bonus is part one of this. This exhibit two, which brings us back to politics, is a study that was published by the National Journal this week and elaborated on by Catherine Rampell of the Washington Post about the sexual mores of Capitol Hill. And part of it just chronicled the general sexism that women who work on the Hill perceive just being talked down, talked over, uh, ignored in, in work. But there was one particular strange habit that appears to have taken over a lot of the Hill, which is that many male bosses, and I think it was really counting male senators and members of Congress, will not be alone in a room with female staffers. And they won't be driven by a female staffer just alone. And the idea is that there is this is there's a perception. in some cases, this is put on the the wife of the legislator doesn't want this. In some cases, it's just the the legislator himself thinks it's this, this is a problem for image or maybe who knows what obviously this is this has a baleful impact on women who want to professionally advance because they just don't get to be as close with their bosses, their male bosses as they might. John, first of all, in your experience, have you heard of this fact of women on the Hill not being allowed to be alone with male principals?
3: Oh, yeah. I mean, and that's not just on the Hill. I think there are CEOs and other areas of life where people have these kinds of roles. Can we
2: stipulate that this is a form of discrimination and it is bad for women's careers? And then also ask whether we can understand why men would institute such a
3: rule? Right, particularly politicians. I mean, I think that's exactly right, Emily. I mean, when I've heard about it, I'm trying to remember who, which lawmaker...
1: I heard about this with Trent Lott years ago.
3: Yeah, I'm trying to think of the lawmaker who talked about it. A lawmaker, I remember explaining and basically saying the reason he didn't do it is because he didn't want to be tempted. I mean, that it wasn't just about appearances, which is the other big reason, which is the if the appearance is there, especially now in the, you know, somebody's going to write about it as fact, and then you spend your time trying to deny a fact that isn't true.
2: I feel like I don't want to be tempted is the totally not okay thing to say about yeah, it no, that's and why no I one was... would admit that, although, of course, that's part of what's but, happening.
1: But can you name me an example of somebody who has been written about as, as being too close to a female staffer where there wasn't actually an affair? Like, so, so I feel like that this whole thing that, oh, people will accuse us of an affair is bull, huh,
3: that's that, they, interesting. that
1: they, there are people who get accused of affairs basically because they're having affairs.
2: But you also, I think people are protecting themselves against
1: false accusations, which we But I don't, don't think there are any false... Can you name a single false
3: accusation? Right, but you don't affair? find the no. notion of false ac- accusation implausible, especially after we just had a long conversation about what may be a totally false accusation.
2: Right. To well, obviously, not, to
3: not what may be, what is a false accusation, we just don't know on whose side. So, clearly, it's a plausible worry... For a lawmaker to have, whether it's actually happened or not, is separate. I, is a right? Separate They're idea. awfully
2: blackmailable, right? I mean, the other thing is to bring this back to university for a moment, because I once sometimes work in one. Nobody I know closes their door when they have students. Now I think the wise way to handle this, and there was someone in Congress who does this, is to have the same rules for both genders. But I'm, I know, I know that. Men at university, male professors, are much more cognizant of not being alone in their offices with female students but, but than stu- I am but, uh, about male students.
1: But also, it's not that you can't have students. you can't have that the university situation is not the same as an office because in a university situation you're dealing with a student that is not a working relationship. That's not a relationship. Yes, it
2: where, is. I mean, you could argue that you know, if men don't want to be as if they are keeping. There's female students at a distance that those girl, those young women are not going to get the same level of advising and help, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, you absolutely can argue that there is a problem. Oh, oh I'm not it's saying there's that... not a
1: pro- I'm not saying it's not a problem. Oh. I'm saying that uh, what I'm saying is that in an office, you can't have a rule which says you can never be alone with a male or a female staffer in your office because you have to be as somebody who is a boss of people. It is very frequent that I have to be That's alone true. with people who work for me. Like it happens all the time. I have to.
2: Right. It would have been really weird if you'd had that rule at Slate.
1: Yeah. And, and that the door, the door has to be – no, the door shouldn't be open because you're having a sensitive discussion about something which people shouldn't hear. And, and it, the answer is not that you shouldn't – you should have the same rules for – well, you should have the same rules for both genders, which is that you should be able to close the door if you want or not close the door if you don't want to. And that it's perfectly fine to have a closed-door meeting with a female colleague, even one who's 20 years younger than you or 20 years older than you. It doesn't make any difference. And people hmm, just have so. To, you
2: think this is just irrational? All of this.
1: I think that people have to get over men, in particular, have to get over the idea that they're going to be constantly accused of of something, and they have to learn to work with women as equal work colleagues. Yeah.
3: What if the real driver is the is the one that that lawmaker I can't remember um, mentioned, which is basically you know the old Jimmy Carter line, I've lusted in my heart. What if men know this about themselves and institute this rule in order to keep themselves from uh, falling into bad behavior in a moment of weakness? What if they do it for that reason and not the Jezebel's going to write about this reason?
2: Then David has a good exercise class and a stiff drink for them.
1: You know, you're an adult. You're an adult who has gotten to a position of authority because you're able to exercise self-discipline. So exercise some frickin' self-discipline.
3: Well, except that most, we've seen time and time again that the exercise of self-discipline in one area of life has no bearing on one's ability to exercise self-discipline in another. And in fact, we know from the study of willpower that when you exercise it in one, which is to say your public duties, which require you to be and maintain a certain posture, you know, 23 hours out of the day, that you exhaust your total store of willpower, which makes you more susceptible to failures of will and self-control in the private sphere.
1: I don't know. I, may, yes, I suppose you're right, John. But think of it this way. Do, has anyone ever had this discussion about Hillary Clinton? Is Hillary Clinton alone with male aides? I bet she is all the time. We as a society just need to stop judging it and stop caring about it and stop thinking it's a reasonable topic of
3: conversation. Are you seeing but that question people about Hillary Clinton be- over, jumps over the fact that men are pigs
1: men are scum they are, are they scum or I, pig?
2: i do not subscribe to this view of men i just want to say but david are you saying that people are gonna of course they're gonna have lust in their heart and that's okay and in fact like the intimacy of the workplace of our workplaces tends to thrive even on some level of that and sure people are going to flirt they just can't go have sex and like that's where the line is and that's obvious or are you yeah. saying something else yeah
1: that's basically yeah. what i think yes that 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 you can't get – you cannot rid the world of sexual tension. You can't rid the workplace of sexual tension. But you can also create a world in which you have expectations that we're going to engage in professional behavior with each other. Uh, The the only one of these rules I liked was that it was after 7 o'clock at night.
2: I loved that. And before 7 a.m. That was a a Yeah, just general workplace rule. We can all agree with that. At that point, you have to go home and work on your phone.
1: Yeah, and that's um, and that, that's, a, that's you can and you can make that for both sexes. Like, I'm not going to be alone with, with a single staffer after 7 p.m. in my office or before. I mean, 7 I
3: 8. feel like does your apply, on this. Does that apply to Skype?
1: <laughs> Doesn't apply to Skype <laughs> unless you're like Anthony Weiner or of the something. Screen
2: you're doing. Um, but see, David, I feel like your take on this, where while it absolutely has to be the sort of legal framework and assumption and it's super sensible and i you know respect it it's not going to ever be attainable for 100 percent of the human population that's just not how people are are there are always going to be people who cross this line yeah
1: yeah there are and so therefore so then the, do we blame the people, them
2: for trying for hedging like for trying to make it easier on themselves for setting some way, up, or right. trying to create the appearance right that, putting I the know,
1: dessert in guess. a locked cabinet so they don't get it right? yeah no, I mean, I, 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 that's a good point. But I, I think we do blame them if it causes the women who work for them to not be able to advance or have the kind of careers that they deserve based on the talent they have.
2: Right. I know. But I can hear in my head various men I know rolling their eyes and saying, essentially, like, what did you think was going to happen? You scared me. You made me feel like I don't like the last thing I want is to be labeled a sexual harasser. And now I am taking precautions. And maybe they are in some way disadvantaging some woman, but tough.
1: Yeah, that's this is a conservative line, which is that this is the feminist sort of blame for this because... They're constantly gonna file complaints. Right.
2: So we should at least air it, even if we don't agree with it.
1: I mean, Emily, this is you this is much more relevant for you. Do you feel like as someone who would be the victim of this, that the avoidance strategy is a is a legitimate strategy?
2: Yeah, I mean, I have this one memory from college of having a male professor who um I really liked, felt comfortable with, didn't feel particular sexual attention with, and then having the semester end and I had to – I can't remember. There was some reason why I offered to bring it over to his house and I remember that he freaked out and and that it made me feel really weird that he thought that like the idea that I was going to ride my bike – to his house knock on the door and hand him something was like a big uh, thing and we I didn't do it I was made totally uncomfortable it definitely has stuck with me and I doubt he would have responded in the way that way to a male student on the other hand like I don't know how bad is that? well look that just happens to be the one thing I remember sure I, if I had never you know when you were my boss if I'd never been able to be alone in a room with you that would have been bad yeah
1: the did you remember the scene in Borgen? Did you guys see Borgen? Where doesn't that yes. exactly happen? The female student comes by to drop over a paper with the handsome right,
2: yes, husband. and the wife freaks out. And the wife freaks out, and
1: then he <laughs> has an affair with her, right?
2: Yeah. <laughs> so, aren't they like gardening or something? Yeah, when they're in the garden. Up? and
1: She shows up. I think she she yeah. probably it was Denmark, so she almost certainly biked over because there's no right. other way to get there. Let's let's.
2: Yeah, I mean, look, right, oh, yeah.
1: John. Is this a, is this a um, an ideological split too? Is this is it Republicans who are not doing this
3: no it, it probably is who are are not doing it, or who are,
1: are not who are not meeting who are
3: not yeah you know, I, I mean my, I associate it with um, with conservative lawmakers much more than democratic ones um, for a third reason which we haven't talked about, which I guess is related to the one, which is it's just like polite behavior or something like that's not right, but it's a norm of a certain kind of people from a certain part of our culture that you just like, that's, you don't, you know, you're not alone with a woman, not your wife at at times. And even if it's somebody who who you work with, like, you don't go out to dinner with them. You don't, I mean, it's just not, like, that's just not what you do. And I think the reason it's just not what you do, again, is that, you know, we're all or in the way this thinking would go we're all fallen we're all sinners and and subject to temptation and therefore don't put yourself in a position where you can be tempted and that's definitely the way it came up in the in the Clinton context which is like the minute you're alone with an intern who's a woman for more than like a minute you're issuing the invitation that you should never be in that position um, and you should know that you should never be in that God, position. It's, and so so you selfish. Already...
1: it's so selfish. It's so making about you rather than thinking, what is the, what is, what is the good of my constituents? The good of my constituents <laughs> is that I have productive workers. Yeah. The good of this woman is or, that she has a productive career where she, if she has smart advice for me as a congressman, I, I'm going to be able to get it. It's just so Well, I don't it's think it's the, the
3: advice is a stopped by having a, a second person in the room.
1: But intimacy, professional intimacy is, can be super valuable to be a confidant of someone is valuable and being a confidant of someone is not a sexual relationship it's a it's a great professional relationship or can be i don't know
2: can i ask you guys a different question or test out a theory for you about vices So, you know, sex, drinking, even gluttony, they're all off the table if you're a politician or a human being. You're not supposed to do any of those things. So, if you're that person who's holding it together 23 hours of the day and you need some kind of outlet, I feel like there are only two things left there's extreme exercise and murder. Adventure. Oh,
3: murder. (laughs) Sorry.
2: I was going to say, like, planning a trip. Yeah, no one should spend time
3: alone with David because. (laughs) <laughs> um, I think that's an extremely good point, Emily. I think, and you look at the people who, I mean, we've seen the relationship between sexual indiscretion and power lots and lots of times. And you see, and then we also have seen the relationship between power and extreme exercise increasingly in our lawmakers. Um, right, like, this is what they be, do. They get up
2: at 5 a.m. and they like go crazy on the treadmill. It's yeah, the although only I'm, way they can.
3: I'm not, yeah. I'm not thinking that that's, I don't think you can scratch the itch with just by exercising, is based on my understanding of the human condition. But um, <laughs> the um, I think you're right though. I think you're onto something. Also, and the problem with the reason it's got to be exercise and not adventure is like you can't go to Borneo at five thirty every day. You know, like right,
2: exactly. You, yeah, yeah, Borneo only works up. as like the once a year outlet. Right, it could be sort of like the affair maybe. But yeah, agreed.
3: Well, wow. Well,
1: I guess that's true as. These guys are all married. They're allowed to have there's licit sex they're allowed to have.
3: Yeah, but I don't think that's why they're, that's why people have affairs. But yeah, but not I but does everyone
1: is your view that everyone has to either everyone has to indulge a vice so it either has to be illicit sex, illicit drinking, illicit drugs <laughs> or it has to be licit exercise and no adventure. I'm
2: saying I something slightly different I hope everyone doesn't have to do one of these three things I'm saying that in the human condition we used to make more room especially for people who were important and powerful for these other vices and right. now we've crossed all these things off the list and I can't really see what else is left and I accept this sort of miserable existence of like running on the treadmill every day at 5 a.m. which I agree with John is not in the end probably going to do it
1: huh that's good all right that was that was great do we have anything to say about these upper east side uh wealthy women who are getting wife bonuses
2: i really wonder how many of these wife bonuses actually exist.
1: i don't think they exist
2: it really seemed like an urban legend to me maybe like or maybe
3: There were like yeah two cases where and now you know yeah that's the way it felt to me yeah
2: certainly no one has offered me one
1: huh that's a good question
2: I guess my husband would be the only one. Who,
1: would <laughs> yeah, do that. who else yeah. would offer? <laughs> yes, some
3: member of Congress is going Who's, to be offering if you. It. I just
1: you don't, put my stop hand it's no, not stop now! My stop now! Stop talking! Stop it! Uh, don't reveal anything else, Emily. On advice of counsel.
2: <laughs> okay.
1: All right. Uh, before anything else terrible happens, let's go to cocktail chatter. So, when you, Emily Bazelon, you're having white wine with your um, glam sams in the Upper East Side of New Haven. What are you going to be chattering about with them? Will it be your flywheel class? Will it be what private <laughs> school your kids got into? What it will it be? will
2: be about a longtime Nebraska legislator named Ernie Chambers, who finally got a longtime wish this week and convinced most of the unicameral legislature, one-house legislature in Nebraska, to vote to abolish the death penalty. And it's this kind of amazing story. I mean, first of all, Nebraska is not an obvious place to um, stop the death penalty. However... Chambers made a real pragmatist as well as moral argument. The state hasn't actually executed anyone since 1997. They are spending way too much on incarcerating people. They've run out of room in the prisons. This is a way to save a whole lot of money. And essentially the sort of sensible answer um, won out. And even though the governor has said he will veto this bill, it passed by a big enough margin to be veto proof. Um, And so I just hope this is like a wave of the Future, a way that conservative states can ride the momentum of criminal justice reform to seeing the argument against the death penalty that is probably the best sell in, um, well, maybe for everyone. You don't have to decide that you would never, ever believe in executing anyone to think that this is uh, just a big waste of money and also to worry about whether the American death penalty can ever be administered fa- but isn't fairly. But
1: the, isn't the counterargument to the big waste of money that, well, let's just and make it easier to execute people. You can do it fast. Yeah, Why incarcerate <laughs> people for 50 years when you can kill them in one?
2: Well, yes, you could just, uh, you know, wipe away all of those appeals. But if you worry about procedural rights, and also the possibility of executing an innocent person, then maybe you would be less sanguine about that alternative. Though, you know, there are some justices on the Supreme Court who would certainly agree with you.
1: John, when you were with the Glam Sams, you could be a Glam. John could be a Glam Sam. <laughs> he's so he's so good looking, and he's blonde, and toned, just like a glam Sam.
3: I think he would chew the scenery. <laughs> um, what would my cocktail chatter be? My cocktail chatter—white wine chatter. I think. Yeah. You see. Um, this is something you could have with a white wine. Um, my colleague uh, Alicia Amling pointed out that on the Hill, who uh, is a producer on the Hill for CBS, that uh, the historian of the House put out a top ten stories that they um, liked in honor of David Letterman's um, going off the air. And one of them was about how in March 1946, a possum broke into the old office building, old house office building, which is now the Cannon Building, and basically roamed around the hallways for a week. Just like cruising around, and so they trapped the, the possum finally in the um, in the boiler room, and it chewed through because possums are really good at chewing through stuff. It chewed through its bounds, and then finally he was captured in the um, in the stationary room by the I guess the clerk who was from Georgia and used. And um, that a,
1: possum was Newt Gingrich.
3: A sack of paper and some raw meat. So then he joked that he would cook up the possum because you know. But it turned out they didn't cook up that possum, but they did cook up possum and served possum in the this House. This so gross.
1: Why are we talking about this yucky? I hate oh, my possum. God. I've got such a great add to this. Continue, okay, so in
3: the House restaurant, it was on the menu, sometimes served in the House. It was a um, a delicacy, and it wasn't just in the House that this was served, but that William Howard Taft, when he was president-elect, yes. we went down to Georgia. <laughs> Um, and this is my favorite the New York Times piece about Taft being served possum. So Emily is aghast at the serving and eating of possum, which, by the way, when you are going to eat possum, you really shouldn't eat any old possum because possum feeds occasionally off of uh, the dead flesh of other animals. And right. if you then eat it's a possum yucky. that... If you and eat a possum that has done tails. so, um, then you're going to be uh, putting yourself in a, in a, in a pinch. Now... What you should do then is get your possum and feed it table scraps so, you know, so that it's fully laden with healthy food, and then you can, can fire it up. Anyway, in Atlanta, Georgia, and this is the lead of the New York Times piece. Cocktails and wine, along with persimmon beer and the Merry Widow Punch, were served at the Taft Possum Banquet last night, and some of the ultra-prohibitionists don't like it. They hold that unlawful drinks were served in the view of the classic dry law of Georgia. So basically the problem wasn't that he was eating possum, it's that he was, he was having a nip, of, a nip of wine. And this is, um, the, the story goes on with a subhead that reads, Possum did not disturb Mr. Taft. Did you see the way the president ate possum and taters last night? This was the prevailing greeting in Atlanta today. And Mr. Taft said, well, I like possum. I ate very heartily of it last night, and it did not disturb in the slightest my digestion or my sleep. There was, And then the Times goes on, there was only a shattered wreck remaining of the 18-pound Billy Possum that was toted up to Mr. Taft's table. Taft liked it so much, it then apparently was served at a, a White House Thanksgiving feast. The um, New York Times referred to the 26-pound Possum as a monster that was served at that That's dinner. a really
2: big turkey.
3: And I then it came on to be so appealing at this Stage that New York hotels, including I believe the Pierre, if the Pierre was around at the time, but I seem to remember reading about it being the Pierre. New York hotels started to fix possum as a as a delicacy for northern eaters. This southern delicacy of possum and taters. So,
2: what do we think it tastes like? It must be tough. It apparently right? t-
3: tastes like pork. Uh, that's what the um,
2: I don't know what that tastes like. Oh, my huh.
3: br- my brief reading of well, uh,
2: David would like it then.
1: I w- so, John, if pops you love and sandwiches, so, so, barbecue. so yeah, that would be good. John Mualem, our friend, Gaffest listener and wonderful journalist, did an incredible story for the podcast, 99% Invisible, that is one of my favorite stories I've heard in the last year about this episode and connecting it. So there's one other detail, John, which Mualem included in his tale of it, which is that part of the possum, having Taft eat possum, that there was actu- an actual marketing, it was like a, a, a grassroots, a viral marketing campaign to create a popular possum stuffed animal in the way that the <laughs> teddy bear had been, the teddy bears, they were going to do the, the Taft possum.
3: Yes, I heard it right. I read about that as well. There's also another account of the possum or of a dinner in which Taft was the honoree and the possum was brought to him under a silver lid and then the lid was removed, and the possum was still alive, and but just tied to whatever the table was um, and that that was part of the that was part of the excitement that you could have you know the possum would be arrayed before you in all of its wriggling splendor um, and that you would somehow uh so you know. When they bring the, when the possum comes calling for you,
1: um. that is so fantastic. The I am not going to spoil the John Well. Mul- you have to go listen to this. The John Wellen episode, which also connects with the whole Teddy Roosevelt thing, has it has it has the best ending of any story, and it involves. Uh, well, I, I don't want just no. Everyone ever enlist- listen, I won't say it is so so great. <laughs> the live the live possum. <laughs> That is the best. I don't even. I can't. All even, right, top not, that, David. I cannot top that. That is untopable. Should I? Should we talk about that? This American Life canvasser story study. Yeah, just, I guess so. Quick, we
2: should correct, retract.
1: We, we should. So I'll chatter about the. There was a claim which I had channeled that actually it turned out that that and This American Life had reported on it. There was studies showing that if you brought someone who was gay and who who could talk personally about the experience of gay marriage to a person who was an opponent of marriage equality and had they had a face-to-face conversation that it made an enormous difference, that it caused a, a swings of 10, 15 points in in the likelihood of that person then going to support and vote for marriage equality. Just a, just unheard of, immediate, Change it was a kind of polling result no one had ever seen it uh, a, a in favor of
2: really long term impact like lasting over months right yeah, that uh, was yeah, memorable. just this
1: canvassing and it it, it filled everyone it scratched everyone 's itch that oh, just personal stories and the
2: it was so heartwarming it was
1: heartwarming now that study amazingly has been retracted it appears that the person who the graduate student who did the research on the that was the basis of the study Faked all the data. Uh, Though
2: he says that he's going to come forward with some defense, let's just make yes, that clear.
1: Yes, the professor who whose name was as the lead author, Professor Green, who was at I can't where do you remember he's at? Professor Emily, I don't remember.
2: I want to say Columbia, but I might have made that. He up. He withdrew the, the paper scientist.
1: and uh, disavowed it completely. This American Life has published a long a long blog post saying what the problems of the piece seem to be, what the problems of the study seem to be, and. Uh, it was a real blow. It was a, it was such a satisfying study. Too bad it may would may have been fake. Our intern is Tark Barrett. Our producer is Mike Volo. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Andy Bowers. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash gabfest. Email us at gabfest at slate.com or comment at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash gabfest. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes which helps other people discover the show. Search for Slate Political Gap in the iTunes store. And don't forget to leave a comment and rating while you're there. Give us five possums or six taters. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson and a 26-pound possum, I am David Plotz.
0: Working is Slate's podcast about what people do all day. And on our next episode, we'll get a little meta with our season finale. Join us for the How Does the Host of Working Work edition with current host Adam Davidson interviewing former host David Plotz. Find out what it's like to host the Working Podcast on the next episode of the Working Podcast. Find us at slate.com slash working or subscribe in iTunes or on your favorite podcast app.